New data finds that the country is becoming less liberal, but not more conservative, I will explain. Plus, this new phenomenon called quiet quitting at work. That and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. That would be much less political, and that is one you are going to get. Despite my teaser, I promise you the bulk of today's content will be about this phenomenon at work, and we get to talk about work, a very important doctrine, and it's how we spend a lot of our time, a doctrine of work. And then a couple stories about a global sexual ethic that I think, man, one of them is just powerful. When I give you the title of it, some of you will blanch at it, but... Here's the title. This is from a secular woman, grew up in this the world in which we reside, and the sexual ethic that she was given. And the title of her essay is, I Regret Being a Slut. The content therein is profound and powerful and a total indictment of the sexual ethic with which we grew up. So I promise, it is a much, much different show this week. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk, I get to serve the incredible people of Beechwood Church as their pastor for teaching, and if you happen to be in the upstate of South Carolina without a church home, or you're just visiting, you should come on out. It's 10.30 Sunday mornings. You can find us just by Googling us. It's easy, Beechwood Church in Greenville. Speaking of just being in town, CNN put out their like 10, 10 places to visit this fall, and on a list with places like Milan, Italy, and Cairo, Egypt. They also put in Greenville, South Carolina, because it is awesome here. I believe that. So uh, if, you're in, if you're in town because CNN told you to, or you're just without a church home, you are invited. You can find more on me, by the way, at CoreyTruax.com, CoreyTruax.com. Let's get to it. I'm often intrigued when the culture comes up with new terms, not often because those terms are smart or tell me anything useful, but because I, as a watcher of culture, the th- the new words and terms we make up tell us something about who we are, and I'm always curious about that. I circle through all kinds of genre of news. You know, you have, you have your uh, your sources that do entertainment news and political news. Well, I like the financial news and business news. I'm into that. I like to know what's going on there. And in the business news world, I started seeing the term quiet quitting in a lot of headlines. Did not know what it meant. Never heard the term before, and that's because someone came up with it like a month ago. And so I had to YouTube it and find out what it is. Here is the phenomenon happening out in the, the business world. And I wonder if you, you might evaluate yourself, are you a quiet quitter? Here's the definition the business types have put on it. It's the people that go to work and they don't quit. It's not that they're not doing their jobs or doing a bad job. It's that they do the absolute bare minimum of expectations. And specifically, these people who call themselves quiet quitters, they say, the things that I do, I do at my best ability. I'm not doing bad work. But whatever the minimum is that I can do, that's what I want to do. It ends up being an argument and a movement about uh, pay raises and how businesses ask employees to do too much. They have a job description that has these 12 or 13 things on it, and then the last line will be, and other duties as assigned. And then those people get assigned more and more duties, and they're not getting more and more compensation. 
And so the ethic has become, you can't just keep assigning me things without paying me more. I'm going to come in and do the absolute minimum, the best that I can, and I'm going to get out of here. Now, there is some proper and good argumentation regarding the fact that businesses do do that. They take advantage of people who work hard. Uh, there's a meme I see floating around social media often that says, my job has this cool feature where if you do your job really well, they let you do everyone else's job. And for those of you who do work hard and do work well, you've probably found that. If you're in a corporate setting and you're doing great, they reward you by saying, Man, here's some other parts of the company, some other parts of our division that's not going well. Will you do it? You get rewarded with extra work instead of extra money or extra time off. There's some reality there. But I had two thoughts on it. One, I'm always looking for a biblical implication. And of course, that idea of quiet quitting, not quitting the job and just doing the minimum, that's of course not us. That's not a biblical thing. I want to give you some corrective on that. Second, but first, I just want to tell you where I think this came from. American cultures, and it might be all cultures, I don't know, but American cultures are really bad at moderation. We are pendulum swingers. It is in part how you go from a Barack Obama to a Donald Trump in eight years. Just stylistically. You know, I I think Barack Obama was one of the worst presidents we've ever had, but he was decently well-spoken. He played by the social rules. He played the part. And one of the backlashes against that was the inauthenticity of it. And here's this force that comes along, and he's real. There's also the policy pendulum we get on. It often goes from aiming for really hard left things to really hard right things. We do this in fashion. I mean, I, I remember the the what girls were wearing when I was young, in my teens, and those very low-waisted jeans and very short shorts were responded to with very high-waisted everything, and then longer stuff that is now typically more tight, like we're, we're in that leggings and phase so that's just been going on for over a decade now, but it, it's in all things. Music does that. There's Rap will, be, will become the, the dominant pop music for a while, and it gets responded to by... The rock, the rock sound comes back for a little while, or even something a little bit more uh, bluesy or, or country. Cult- our cultures, for whatever, swing wildly. And I think our work ethic has done the same thing. There was a, uh, there's the hashtag that goes around for people that, you know, that work hard. The hashtag is rise and grind. Not rise and shine, but r- get up and grind out the work. And I think... My age group probably did see our parents work very hard and were not properly rewarded. I think I saw that. Like I think I've told you before, when we got back from Africa, we were missionaries, there was a time my dad was working, I think it was four jobs. I think it was a pest control guy. He was delivering pizzas. On the weekends, I think he was loading and unloading trucks at a place called Conway, maybe. And plus, he was always in ministry. I saw him work very hard and give a lot of himself to these places. 
because he would always give full effort. He's never quiet quitting. He's giving everything he can and saying, what else can I do? And not being really well compensated for it. I think even in, I mean, as he left those settings and got a, a great gig, I wondered about, you know, is, is, is his contribution properly recognized? And not just my dad. I saw that with a lot of men running that rat race where they are giving a lot to this company, a lot of hours and a lot of years. Rare, rarely was it nine to fives. It was nine to sixes and nine to sevens and nine to eights, and they're missing a lot. Are, and are, and they're, they're, they're being respected for it. They're being told that's the right thing. Give a lot to your work. And then when we get women into the workforce in mass, we sold the same thing to them. The way you're going to find some meaning, the way that you can know if you're being the right kind of adult is, are you earning a lot and working very hard? Are, it was almost like a badge of honor. I worked this many hours over 40. Oh, guys, my friends who work in New York City, they, I, I was at a, a, like a restaurant with them, and they were all talking about how much they were working with a lot of pride. They are working hours. I've, I don't think I've ever worked a 50-hour week in my life. I'm okay with that at least not my secular job, there's a, there was a pride to it that the amount of hours worked meant something about work ethic, which, by the way, it doesn't. I think I work really hard, but in my secular job, I don't necessarily... I very rarely work a 40-hour week, just the way our schedule's set up, but I give the place all, all that I've got, and I actually consider it more of a success that if I have... 10 things I want to do and two more that I consider to be stretch goals in a week and I finish them in 30 hours, that's a win. Walk away. Let's go do something else. But that would have not been the ethic of the generation behind me. I've noticed that in working in cross-generational situations, people my age and younger, I I would ask you this question. I'm 36. Have you noticed that the 50 and and older crowd they're very comfortable with staying late. They're very comfortable with putting in hours. And you might notice the hours they put in, they don't necessarily do a lot. Like you know what they're doing could be accomplished in less time, but they think there's some credibility in just being there. And I think that work ethic, the rise and grind, give a lot to your work, I think the pendulum might be just swinging a little too far. Maybe not a little too far. Like a lot too far. Where instead of finding a lot of meaning in work and counting on it to give me meaning, this group behind behind them, me and people younger than me, are saying, No. I gotta I gotta work to live. I don't live to work. I gotta give this minimum of effort of my happiness, of my energy, of my social capital to this place. Fine, I'll do that. I'm not giving you a bit more than you've compensated me for. Which is, of course, unhealthy. That, that other attitude is unhealthy. And not just unhealthy, but more importantly, un, it's not the biblical attitude. But before we get to the Bible part, socially, that's, that's what I'm seeing. It's a pendulum swing saying, I have way more stuff to do. This, this job is not where I'm going to find meaning. And that doesn't necessarily mean people are finding their meaning in other healthy places. It's just... It's just this. Um, this I, I this just occurred to me right now. Talking, this longtime idol 
in, in America of your job, your title being the second most important thing about you. Like you say your name and then someone asks you, what do you do? What's your work? There's a generation going, I, man, I just don't care. I care about your hobbies and whatever else you do, but man, I just don't care what you do. I don't care what I do. I'm not impressed by it. It's not going to define me. All right, that's the social part. Now, biblically, this quiet quitting phenomenon, I want to make sure that we are not those people. It's, oh man, it would be transformational if Christians in the United States saw their jobs like foreign missionaries saw their cities and their fields they go to with the gospel. Transformational. The attitude that work is transactional, I get. I get it when it comes to how we take care of our families or whatever. But the Lord did place you there for whatever reason. I'm thinking just about people in my life right now. You are in that manufacturing center for a reason. I don't know what it is, but the Lord placed you in it. You're in that cabinet shop. You're in that university. You're in that school. You're in that daycare. You're in that HR office. You're in accounts receivable. You are where you are because the Lord purposed you to be there. You're in that law office. You broadcast from that microphone. You do those examinations on those bodies. You prescribe those drugs. You do all of those because the Lord sovereignly placed you there. I, because I have a lot of pastors. You study, and you do the funerals, and you do the weddings, and you visit in the hospitals. You do the counseling because the Lord has purposed that you would be there. And man, if you'd put that in your heart and mind about your role at work, it would change everything. It would not be a place that you're there to quietly quit. You're there to be the best example of joyful work. Because at least these three things, these are always my three things when people ask about work and theology. You know, you talk a lot about theology, but I spend most of my time at work. What can you tell me about work? Well, here's my big three all the time. Number one, work is a gift. He gave us, God gave us work before the fall. Work and your ability to work is something God gave to cultivate your mind and your body. We all love a job well done. Whatever it is, you know, when you've done something well and you look back on it, it just feels so good to have used your body or your mind, your skills that way. Work is a gift from God. And if you all start to realize that not everyone can work, there's a physical or a mental issue that keeps people from being able to produce and work and see a job well done, Maybe you'll cultivate in yourself a better appreciation for being able to work. Number one, work is a gift. Treat it like that when you go. Two, if you are able to work, you should. That's what Thessalonians says? Second or third? I don't remember. But something, one of the Thessalonians says, if, if anyone's not willing to work, don't let them eat. And if we hear that some among you are idle and not busy at work and you're busybodies, that's the person that we would command and encourage. I'm I'm paraphrasing like crazy here. We would command in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work and earn their own living. There isn't a place in the biblical worldview for laziness and idleness. 
That doesn't mean for rest. There's, there's obviously a command for rest. There's a need, a demand. That's a gift too. But if you are able to work, you should work. That doesn't necessarily even mean for a wage, stay-at-home moms or teenagers that listen to me or college students that listen to me. Do your work. Whatever the work is that the Lord has placed before you, just do that. And as you do it faithfully, it's in an act of worship to the Lord. So number one, work is a gift. Two, if you can work, you should be. And three, you don't work for your boss. You work for the Lord. That's what Paul said in Colossians. Let's go with that. Yeah, Colossians. Um, Whatever you do, work heartily unto the Lord. Make that pizza unto the Lord. Weld that, I don't know what you weld, material to the Lord. Teach that class unto the Lord. Recruit those students unto the Lord. Administrate your business. Write those checks unto the Lord. And and in that way, we will not be the quiet quitters. We'll be the people that can actually go out into the main part of what we do, our careers, our jobs, and maybe make an impact for the kingdom. When we return, I think I want to get into... Which one do I want to do first? Yeah, let's do this... uh, this I regret being a slut thing from Bridget Fetissey. I think it's profound. There's that and a whole lot more to do today when you return for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I am all but positive this is the first time I will have covered a story out of Singapore on the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to it on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find me, your host, at Corey Truax on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I would be appreciative if you did and send me stuff for the show, comments, questions, or topics. That's actually probably where 20% of the show comes from is you responding to things. So I'm grateful. Here's the story out of Singapore. I'll tell, you why I'm, I'll tell you why I'm telling you the story after I tell it to you. The Singapore Parliament has decriminalized gay sexual relationships. So up until this, this month, some two people found having any kind of sexual relationship that was not a heterosexual relationship, it was a crime in Singapore. And they decriminalized it. They didn't do anything about like gay marriage or anything. Where they decriminalized homosexual sex. And I, I tell you that story because I'm I am ready to start leaning heavily on that argument I gave you recently about the Christian sexual ethic. I just noticed that our interlocutors, man, what a pretentious word. Um, let's go with the people who disagree with us that might want to debate sexual ethics. They are obsessed with the concept of uh, not being ethnocentric white. And I want to start leaning hard on the reality that around the world, all over Asia, all over Africa, in a lot of Latin America, your sexual ethics to the white Westerner, they're insane. You're, You're literally criminal in a lot of the world. And so when you tell us that our sexual ethic is so backward, you're looking at other cultures around the world and you're demeaning them by calling their sexual ethic wrong. So you fix that in your own head. What, which one are you? Are you a bigot? You're a bigot against those other cultures? Is that what you're going to be? Or what? Did you? To, maybe do you have a, another reason to think about your sexual ethic for a, reason, for a minute? 
Maybe it's not so enlightened. Or are you telling me that the white Western world is just way more enlightened than the rest of the world? Anyway, I tell you that story because I'm ready to lean hard into that argument. I actually think there's some heft and some importance to it. I also wanted to use it as a segue. I recently read a really incredible essay by Bridget Phetasy. Bridget Phetasy is by no means a conservative. I think I'd put her in the libertarian-leaning, but more of a left-wing libertarian type. For years, she was a writer at Playboy. She uh, certainly a, a feminist, and no prude by any stretch. Kind of, I mean, she's been vulgar in the past, even. Bridget Phetasy writes on her own blog, it's a, a substack, the title, I Regret Being a Slut. It's provocative as a title, and of course that caught my eye, and I gave it a read. It is such an instructive evaluation of the damage we've done to women. It's done damage to men too, but the damage we've done to women after the sexual re- revolution of the 60s and the liberation of the, of the 70s. I'll give you, I can't read it to you because that's a rule on radio, you can't do that. But let me give you my best summary. Of a woman now not much older than I am. I'm 36, I think she's in her early 40s. So she would have been not experiencing the 60s or 70s, but she would have been living in the world that the 60s and 70s made, where we decoupled the sexual act from commitment and intimacy and what we, this holy thing we call marriage. Here is how she begins. She talks about how feminism was awesome for her in that she gets to make her own money, control her own life. Through access to birth control, she can control her own, not just when she has kids, but control her own cycle. What, what an incredible gift that was, she says. But she says it did cost her a lot, and it's cost women a lot, because the, the trade-off was make your own money, control your own cycle, but we are going to decouple sex from consequences. The attachment that comes with it, forget it. The emotional consequence in bonding, nope. We're going to decouple those things. And she says specifically, decoupling sex from consequences, it benefited men. That's how men wanted to see the sexual act, but that's not how, that's how women felt about it. She specifically says, it made us all men. That third wave feminism and decoupling sexual acts from feelings and emotions and attachment and consequences of any sort, turning it into a purely recreational endeavor, it just turned us all into men. And she goes into depth that she's been with dozens of men and she regrets every one of them except two. She said her first husband and her first boyfriend. It, here's, I wrote these words down. She said these words. All, after almost every sexual encounter, she felt these three, empty, demoralized, worthless. That breaks my heart for a, for a woman. You, you, you're, to, you're told, taking part in this act with this attitude, it's going to be f- fulfilling, empowering, 
You're going to know your worth. And in the end, empty, demoralized, worthless. Her words, not mine. She told of all of the feelings of rejection when she wouldn't get a call back. Go out with a guy, have sex with that guy, and just feeling so rejected. I can see that. She said she became she began to use sex like a drug. She was addicted to affirmation, addicted to feeling desired, and after every rejection, she would need to be affirmed again her desirability and so she keeps going back to a drug that would never fulfill her. She writes that she told herself that feeling disposable like this like I can just be interacted with in this inherently intimate way where then this intimate act can be shared and then never talk to me again. I can be disposed like disposed of like that. That's the the level of impact I had on another human when we shared that kind of intimacy, that level of rejection and disposability. She told herself, she said she lied to herself that it didn't matter. All of the times a man would walk out of her place in the middle of the night, the hints she would get from a man in the middle of the night that it was time for her to go, being ghosted after these dates and encounters, just literally never hearing from them again. Here's a quote. I only wrote down a couple notes from the actual article. She has the quote. She would tell herself, I'm not in pain. I'm empowered. I'm not in pain. I'm empowered. That was her affirmation she would give herself. I'm not in pain. I'm empowered. This is what power feels like. That I can make a man want me. Now, she paints a really vivid picture of the destruction. The emotional heartache of her time is what she calls a slut. Don't get mad at me. That was how she titled her essay. And then she kind of gives a, uh, I think it's a, it can be instructive. Remember, we're not listening to a Christian here. We are hearing from someone who practiced worldliness, found it empty and destructive, and they are testifying not to the goodness of God or to the rightness of the biblical sexual ethic, but testifying to the destructiveness of the worldly sexual ethic. She gives an insight that she grew up Catholic. And there was a lot of what she called sex neg- negativity. Just a lot of guilt around it. And she internalized this... Uh, let, me, let me restart that sentence. She was taught that your virginity, your sexuality, is core fundamental to your self-worth. It's one of the things you trade for a husband. You hold on to the sexuality to give to him as a, as a matter of your worth. And if you give it away, you become worthless. I don't think we should be teaching it that, that way. That I can see how someone ends up surrounding sexuality with emotions of fear and shame when you wrap someone else's, when you wrap a, a woman's worth up into her sexuality. We need to think about that as a church. Think about that at how we talk about sex that it, and how we teach about it. I would argue it's almost never appropriate to talk about it in, intimately or in depth in mixed company, but conceptually, we we do we hold it in high esteem, not 
uh, it's going to be hard. I, I know we come from, I mean, I think I came from a, a similar ethic where there, there's a taboo nature where we, you leave it alone like it's such a, it's such a secret. Whereas I, th- I think the way we need to deal with it is when it, when the topic comes up, especially biblically, that we celebrate that the Lord gave a good gift and he was so good to protect the good gift by giving it boundaries, just like all the other good gifts. He gave us work and food and the planet and money. and he, These are all good gifts. And then he put boundaries on how we use all of them. Sexuality belongs in, that, in a category like that. Good gift, yeah. And here's the boundaries the Lord gave. Anyway, that's one part of the essay where she tries to give some background on why she might have been the way she was. The last one-third, she says she internalized this lie, that loveless sex is empowering, that being desired is empowering, until sometime in her mid-30s when she realized being desired doesn't mean being esteemed. Oh, I'm going to say it again. Being desired doesn't mean being esteemed. Actually, ladies, I got to tell you, it's not that hard to be desired. Most most men desire a lot of various women. There's There's a fairly decent formula to being desired. It takes a certain kind of discipline on nutrition and taking care of yourself. You'll be desired. That doesn't mean you're esteemed. Do you think that in this culture the Kardashians are esteemed? Do we hold them in high regard? No, they're just sexually appealing. Most of our music stars and movie stars, do we respect them and want to hear their opinions? No, I think Scarlett Johansson's an absolute moron and unbelievably gorgeous. It's not hard to be desired. It's actually hard to be esteemed. I don't know why this illustration is popping into my head, and it, it might be the wrong spot for it, but Tim Keller has talked about this in almost every sermon he's ever done on sexuality. That there is a an instinct in all of us that what we really, really want is to be fully seen and fully loved. There's people like me who are willing to not be fully seen as long as we can feel fully loved. So my nature is put on a good show, do everything I'm supposed to do, serve all of my serve my purposes and everyone else's, serve everyone around me, make sure I'm giving my best out. Now, I'm not going to let you in. I'm not going to I'm going to keep everyone at arm's length, but I will feel loved by you because of all the things I did even though I'm not really fully known. So that's one side of it. The idea of being loved but not known, and it's, I think the way he says it is, it's, it becomes superficial. The other side of that, the inverse, is to be known. Someone really gets to know you, but then they do not love you, and that's everyone's greatest fear. But then there is to be fully known and truly loved, both seen for who you are and loved. And he has used that as an illustration for that's, that's really the only love that's love maybe that only comes from God. I think a lot of us find it here in a spouse maybe. There are relationships in that you, wherein you feel really known. This person really knows me. 
and they love me anyway. But you take that back to this woman and her experience. She felt desired, but even though someone would really get to know her, the, the sexual act is quite intimate making, as in chemicals in your brain and a, and a, a connection that happens. I was really known, and then they never called me back. I was really known, and they rejected me. That her desire did not equal esteem or love crushed her. And she says now, and she's in a healthy, I think, second marriage. She's found, no, sexuality is actually about intimacy. It's about vulnerability. It's about trust. In all of her casual sexual experience, it caused insecurity. It caused a lot of faking. It caused a lot of lying. Because I can't really truly be known. I need to be desired. I need to be approved of. Makes me insecure. I'm going to have to fake a lot of things. And I can't be honest. And it just broke her. I think last bit I'll give give to... Give it... The last bit of this I'll give to you. And then I have one final thought. I think the saddest thing she said was the feelings she would get when a guy would just call her back within a few days of a date. She used to think it made her happy. She's realized, as she's gotten older, that the feeling wasn't happy. She was relieved. It was just relief. I'm worth something. I'm not just worth experiencing and then never thinking about ever again. All right, that's her story. It's harrowing. It's interesting. I think it's worth reading if you want to. Bridget Fetessy is easy to find. Her her Substack or her her blog, I think, is called Beyond Beyond, Beyond Parody, maybe. Yeah, Beyond Parody, probably. Uh, but also, her name is easy to Google. I think final thought here is this: We know those stories are out there. Some of you are thinking of someone you know. Not even you're not thinking of him or her in a negative consequence or a, a negative light. You just know it's true that their sexual escapades left them empty and dirty and feeling rejected. And we have something to offer to those folks. I'll leave you with this on that. I think it's it's one of the ways Matt Chandler got famous, the pastor of Village Church down in Dallas. I think this moment was his don't waste your life moment, the seashells moment. John Piper really blew up onto the scene because of an illustration where he really hit on some retirees who were going to spend their twilight years collecting seashells. And this moment really blew up Matt Chandler, where he told a story when he was young. A, a pastor at a youth conference gave out a rose to the first person in the crowd, and he asked that everyone pass the rose down. And it goes through hundreds and hundreds of hands as he's talking and giving an illustration and doing some preaching and by the end, the rose gets back to him, and it's mangled and nasty and kind of broken and smudgy. It's no longer bright. And his illustration there is, who wants this now? And he's saying to teenagers, and if you give yourself to lots of people, and you have the hands of a lot of people get on you, you're going to be like this rose, and no one wants you. And Matt Chandler's response was, but no, he wants the rose talking of Jesus. He wants the rose. You're not too dirty. You're not too broken. You're not too rejected. This world has lied to my generation and younger. I think the ones a little bit older than me too 
that there was some kind of fulfillment to be had in meaningless sexual encounters. It's left them empty and bruised and rejected, and we have something for them. You are not rejected. You are not too far gone. Through repentance and faith and following Jesus, you are not a second-class citizen. You are made a daughter of God and come on back in. Or come on in for the first time. There's a lot of broken people. We have a story to tell them about reconciliation. When we return, I will give you that thing we started with and the teaser. A study that shows that we're becoming a less liberal country, but somehow not a more conservative one. We'll do that when you return for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Would you be surprised, maybe even skeptical, if I told you there's data to, data to suggest that the country is getting less liberal over the last five or six years? I'll present that to you in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. I know that sounds surprising. It seems the world has gone crazy left. But the Morning Consult just issued a great deal of social science and polling they've done. To ask, our, to ask the country how we've shifted since 2017. You might remember the significance of 2017 is a very large personality that caused a lot of people to lose their minds. Became president of the United States, and it's all that every news station did. He filled every second of the day. And so to me, this was a test of whether or not conservatism and liberalism would... Uh, or not, not whether or not, how much would the two ideologies and how many people identify with them, how much would it change? Because one of the, my fears from that personality was that he would poison the term conservative. He would get associated with the conservative party, and because he was so objectionable, the, the, the people would start obje- objecting to the ideas that come from that ideology. Now, ultimately, the ideas were great. You know how I know? Those four years were fairly well conservatively governed, and while the country felt like chaos, the actual results were pretty daggum good. At least, I mean, with most things. We had a quickly growing economy. We had wages that were growing without inflation, full employment, and investment, business investment was doing great, record revenues. We had record spending, too, because those guys will not stop spending money, including Republicans. And so the, the policy, when it's implemented, is actually good for all humans. That's my big interest in, in policy, is I want policies that benefit all of humans. So I, I, like, I like conservative policies because they're better for humanity, and often mostly biblically aligned. So I was going into it thinking, oh man, I bet conservatism has taken a beating because of his personality, and liberalism will have grown. I was wrong. Here are just three uh, bullet points, and then we'll get into some of the data. From their study, the share of the electorate identifying as very liberal or liberal or somewhat liberal, any of those three, very, very somewhat or just liberal, since 2017 dropped from 34% to 27%. The decline, number two here, the decline in liberal self-identification though, has not led to a major increase in conservative identification. This is 
This is what I see. I can't prove this. Here is how I would interpret that. Uh, he apparently didn't do a bunch of damage to conservatism. But liberal reaction to him was so insane and overwrought and maniacal and apoplectic, catastrophizing? Let's go with that word. It turned a lot of people off. The, The reaction to the personality ends up getting people to go as far as, yeah, men have babies. I saw this very funny meme that said, Something to, the, something to the effect of, you know, just when I think the country's losing all of its morals, I, I get on the subway and find, uh, and find an old lady get up to offer her seat to a pregnant man. That's, that's how we, that's how far it went with the crazy. The defund the police stuff. Like, the, the, the days of rage and literally a day to go scream at the sky and put a hat on that looks like female genitalia. There was a whole bunch of people that went, uh, I don't think I'm with you people. I know I'm not with those folks over there, but I'm definitely not with you people. And that's that's actually what the data show. While there's a slight increase, um, excuse me, slight decrease in those that called themselves liberal, they basically all moved into the moderate camp, calling themselves moderate, but no moderates became conservatives. So at a time where... The, the left was acting insane enough to repel a lot of people. Conservatism seemed also crazy because of its behavior, uh, or at least the person at the top that identified as the, the leader of conservatism, and so they wouldn't come over. But there are some uh, other cross-sections that I think are interesting here. When you look at... Co- People with no college degree. Historically, those with no college degree, working class voters, they are often called, even though I have a college degree and I am firmly working class, have most identified with Democrat—excuse me, with liberalism, not socially, but it was all economics. It was the idea of helping the little guy and making sure there were programs, state and local level, for their families and their kids and welfare programs, things like that. In fi- uh, in since 2017, of the non-college educated, 27% back then called themselves liberal. Only 20% is now. That is a, a statistically significant drop of the working class voter moving to the right. Those with a bachelor's degree dropped by four degrees. But get this. Those with postgraduate degrees went up by four. So the more education you have, the more likely you are to believe some of the crazy, insane things on the left. It's an, I think I had two reactions from it. One is what a missed opportunity. If the personality that was representing rightism wasn't such a, insert your, in, insert your own insult here, there was such an opportunity to win because they were acting so crazy. They were repelling people. What a missed opportunity we had. And then two, they're not going to listen, but the left should take something constructive. You're being crazy. Your behavior is insane. You're repelling people. I just pulled up 
Oh, wow. That's huge. I just found the cross tab for race. In 2017, 54% of black voters called themselves one of those three liberal categories, either slightly, normal, or extremely. 54% called themselves liberal in 2017. 32% called themselves liberal now. 22-point drop. Hispanics in 2017 called themselves 55% liberal. 37% now. Drops like crazy. What did that? Defund the police. Green New Deal. Men, men are, women have penises. Men can have babies. Uh, and the single most important thing about everybody is their race, and the entire country is shot through thread by thread with racism. You've never seen a blade of grass or stop sign that isn't by its nature racist. Those things had people dropping the liberal label like crazy. Just wish there would have been a cohesive response to tell a good story. You know, on the Christian world, that's... that's one of my themes is we have such a great story to tell. It's beautiful. Beautiful story. And conservatism has a good story to tell. To, to say to folks, we just believe in you. Your potential, your, abil- your abilities, your talents, your skills, that you don't need the government to help you. You need the government to get out of the way that, so that you can serve yourself. You need the government to hold powerful people accountable, powerful people accountable if they are doing things to disadvantage you. But the the story here is we believe in you. It's a good story to tell. Hard work. Play by the rules. You're gonna get you, you can get ahead. These are beautiful stories to tell, and there was no one there to tell it. There was a story about building a wall and having Mexico pay for it. That's what we had instead of the great story. Like this is why Reagan won so big. He had a great story to tell. Morning in America. Some core values. Take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Work hard. Keep more of what you earn. And there's just no one there to tell another story. Uh, so we had more time than I thought. I'm going to play for you now a clip. That I'm, I'm using our last segment here to do some of the political stuff because we didn't do it in the first two, and I don't like doing it. She is the Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia. She's going to lose by seven or eight points, I think, in the end. She was recently invited to a church. That's a terrible idea. And she had this to say, and I'll respond when she's finished. Her name is Stacey Abrams. I am the daughter of two pastors. I have a... Well, real quick, no, you're not. Uh, you're the daughter of two people who call themselves pastors, but um, I'm assuming you are the daughter of a man and a woman, and one of them isn't a pastor, at least not biblically. And my guess is neither is the other one strong moral core. I was trained to read and understand the Bible, and I will tell you this. Oh, really? You are trained to read and understand the Bible. I cannot wait to find out what happens next. Guys, you you know me. I don't get mad about a lot. Twisted scriptures, they get to me. But hey, she's been told, or she just told me she was trained to read the Bible. Okay, well, what did it tell you? There is nothing about the decision to eliminate access to abortion care that is grounded in anything other than cruelty and meanness and danger in the state of Georgia. Oh, wowzers. She must know a lot more Bible than I do. Two thoughts on that inane stupidity. One, that's demonic. Oh, not two thoughts. I think I have four thoughts. One, that's demonic. Your, unfe- your support for unfettered abortion at any time for any reason, it's demonic. You'll be judged in eternity forever. Stacey Abrams, if you do not repent and turn 
from that position. That is the Christian's message to Stacey Abrams. Repent or you will be judged forever for what you just said. Two, the church that invited her and gave her a microphone is an apostate church. If you are part of a church that would invite any kind of person to say such a thing, you're an apostate church. Your soul is in danger and you need to get out. Three, I am also going to get fairly angry if we invite a Republican in to say something about how America is like Israel or unique in God's eyes or the apple of God's eye. No, we're not. Let's keep the people who don't actually know their theology away from the microphones of the churches and let the preachers do the preaching. And finally, four, did you hear it? It's something I talk about with some regularity when it comes to argumentation. It's when you don't argue the point, you argue your opponent's motive. I found that often in the Matt Walsh What is a Woman documentary. I haven't seen it, but I've seen a lot of the YouTube clips. When he asks the question, what is a woman, or sometimes the questions he's asking, they don't want to give him an answer. They often ask him why he's asking. Because what they want to know is, can I just go and attribute that you're a bigot and a hater? Can we just go ahead and say that? Because I'm not answering any questions. You're, I, a question, a genuine question of my ideas just means you're a bigot and a hater. And so she gets to just say, there is no other motivation for oppo- opposing abortion except cruelty, hatred. That, so did you know that about yourself, pro-lifer? You're cruel and hateful. That's why you oppose the murder of the unborn in the womb. It's all about your cruelty and hatred. It's lazy. It's a dumb way to... And listen, this is important for our personal lives as well. Don't just assume people's motives. It's one of, one of my biggest pet peeves is when someone tells me why I did something. If we're ever friends, don't do that to me. You can ask. You can assess. You can say, my perception is that you did this or that for this reason. That's fine. But in this case, it is a, it's a laziness, it's an intellectual immaturity to attribute a motive to your opponent instead of interacting with the opponent's arguments. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week on his radio talk. Until then, everybody, peace and love.